Amen. Well, if you live uh, in this world, which FYI, all of you do, um, so that you know, there will be at some time or another, in some form or some level, you will experience suffering, you will experience hardship, troubles, trials, tribulations, all of those things. There's none of us that are exempt from it, whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ or whether you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Nobody's exempt, not even uh, the richest in the world or the most powerful in the world. They're not exempt from suffering. Now, they may be able to exclude or eliminate certain types of suffering from their life. For example, they may never understand the suffering of severe poverty that severe poverty brings. However, because of their wealth and because of their power, uh, their whole lives are opened up to a whole other area of suffering that many others may never ultimately experience. You know, with all of this suffering and troubles and trials and problems that people face on a day-to-day basis, you kind of wonder where all these things are coming from, right? And uh, it's easy to go and blame somebody else, but why is it that we face so many of these throughout our life? And the Bible really, the, the simplest answer for that overall is that we live in a fallen world. The world is fallen and the world is cursed, and that is because God's creation, instead of recognizing him for who he is and worshiping him for the creator that he is, we all chose to do what is right in our own eyes. We rebelled against him, and when we did, all of creation fell underneath a curse. And so because of that, bad things happen, difficulties face us. But you know what? Some of the trials and difficulties that we face are really just simply brought on by ourselves because of our own sinfulness. Sinful decisions that we've made that sometimes we have to now pay for because of what we did. Sometimes, really, our suffering is caused or troubles are caused because of somebody else's Uh, sins uh, against us and we're suffering kind of together because of the choices that they made you know the bible says that you know you don't even have to do something wrong and suffer in fact you could be doing everything right as a child of god and as a disciple of jesus christ and because of your obedience to jesus christ you can find yourself in all types of trouble the word of god says Man, there's so much trouble that even the best things in life, the really good things in life that that God has given to us to enjoy as a blessing, things like marriage and family and children, even in the midst of that, we can experience some of our gravest heartaches and troubles. Would you agree? And the Bible is very clear about that. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 28, he says that it is not a sin to marry. Isn't that wonderful to know? It's not a sin to marry. He says, but if you do, know that you will experience worldly troubles. So what we understand, and yeah, only, you know what? Hey, can I say this? Only you guys and I get that. Okay, nobody else understood that. Only we are struggling in difficulties within the marriage, okay? So we'll keep talking throughout the sermon, okay? So anyway, back to the rest of you holy people. Um, uh, What we understand is, is, is this, is that it's one in the same, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, it's one in the same for all of us. However, what is different is how we face those trials, how we deal with those trials. That's really what separates those who are believers and those who are unbelievers. Let me tell you how an unbeliever usually faces trials and difficulties and even horrors in life. There's a tendency for them, not that they have a relationship with God, but there's a tendency for them to draw even further, if that's even theologically possible, away from who God is. They begin to doubt whether God exists, and sometimes they begin to even doubt his character in nature. Have you ever heard something like this? Somebody sits back and says, well, listen, if God is truly loving, how in the world can a loving God ever allow something 
to happen like this. They're doubting his character in the midst of difficulties. But you know what? For a believer, it's completely different. Now, let me explain something to you. You might be new and you might be visiting. When I see believer, I don't mean common southern belief that everybody and their brother is a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm talking about those who have truly been regenerated, those who have truly repented and placed all of their faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, those who have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, those who are true believers in Jesus Christ don't allow those difficulties to draw them away. Instead, they draw much closer and they draw in to the person of God. In fact, they are radically changed because of those differences and those challenges. So what I want to do this morning, we just want to walk through the text. Not a whole lot of text, but I think there's a lot of there. We want to walk through it, and and here's what we just want to see. How does a believer deal with difficulties, challenges, and troubles in life? How do they face them? How do they deal with them? And I think James is very clear here. Let, notice, if you will, follow along in verse 2. James says this. He begins by saying, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Let me draw your attention just for a minute to that word count. Uh, The Greek word there can literally be translated to make a deliberate calculated decision. So here's what James is telling to his original audience. He says, guys, when you are facing great trials and difficulties, you have to stop, take a time out, make a decisive decision within your mind to face that difficulty with joy. Now, it's not just with any joy. Did you notice the word all before that? He says all joy. What he means by that is this. He says, an uncorrupted joy, pure joy. He says, not mixed with anything else, not joy mixed with fear, anxieties, or tensions, but just joy alone. Now, let me, I got to stop right here just for a moment, because as I was studying for this this Sunday, or, you know, beginning in last week, I had to stop at this point. I didn't get very far, and I don't think we should get very far before we begin to do business with God. Because the truth of the matter is, is I have to recognize this. You have to recognize what James is saying here is not a suggestion. This is not something that some dead dude 2,000 years ago wrote to dead people 2,000 years ago and to, so that they can have their best life now. That's not the instruction that he's giving. What he's doing is he's giving them a command. And, but remember something. It's not just a man who is writing this. The Holy Spirit, we believe, is leading him The Holy Spirit is leading him to write the very words of God. So therefore, those words are not only binding in their original audience, but they're binding on us here and now. The command is for you and I, check this out, is to meet joy. What does he mean by that meet joy when we're facing joy? He's talking about when you're surprised by difficulties. Isn't that usually how it happens? You usually don't see the difficulty come and what happens? It just comes out of the blue. He says when you fall in, when you come face to face with difficulties, you and I are commanded of God to view that in joy. Okay, I have a problem with that. I'm just letting you know that I have a problem with that. I don't do well with that. My first inclination when they come back and say your foot's falling off is not to rejoice. My, 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 my initial inclination, just to let you know, because some of you don't know me and I'm such a smooth dude, is I freak out when I, when, when I encounter bad things. Do you? Gosh, you guys are so godly. It's just depressing to talk to you sometimes. Yes, if you're with me, it's, it's overwhelming Sometimes when you hear the difficulties of life and it comes, and i got to be honest with you, it's not my, my first reaction to view it as joy. 
It's not my second reaction. It's not my third reaction. It's not my fourth or fifth. I'll be honest with you, just completely transparent. There are many difficulties that I was reminded of in my life that I've been going through for a period of time that I have never viewed as joy before God. Never. So from right from the beginning, what I find myself doing is finding a need to repent. Don't you? I'm sitting there and going, God, I've blown this. I've questioned your love. I've questioned your care. I've questioned your motives. But the truth of the matter is, is I need to do what you've called me to do. But here's the next thing. Show me how to do this. Show me how to do this because I can't do this on my own. And so what we find is this, is, is, is I begin to think to myself, okay, what kind of trials is he talking about? Okay, what kind of trials that we're ultimately facing? Now, I think that's important because trials are different, are they not? And there are some trials that I can see myself kind of, you know, with some intestinal fortitude, just kind of going, all right, I'm going to face this with trials. Say, oh, I was driving to church this morning and I got a flat tire. Pray that never happens because I'll miss the service. I stink at mechanical things. But just say, I was coming to church this morning. I get a flat tire. I pull over to the side of the road and I begin to change. I could probably get out knowing that I was going to preach this this morning and get out and go, all right, don't like doing this. Got to get dirty, but you know what? I'm going to do this with all joy. God, I view this as joy, all right? I could probably, you guys get that? Some of those things you could probably work up in yourself, but what happens when your child dies? I mean, what trials are we talking about here? Are we talking about these fairy tale make-believe trials? Are we talking about these trials that literally the entire bottom of your life falls out, which is it? What context kind of lets us know, I think, in this passage, I think what he says is, remember who he's writing to. He's writing to those that had been scattered, the Jews that had been scattered. They had been suffering from all kinds of religious persecution, which means they had lost their homes. They had lost their jobs. Many of them, some of them had been beaten. Some had been placed in prison. Many of them have been scattered through foreign lands where they don't speak the language, some of them. They, they don't know the culture. It's completely different. As we work and navigate through the book of James, he tells us that these people have been exploited by the rich, dragged into court and been sued, faced utter pro- poverty, and they were slandered by those who were supposed to ultimately love them. They're going through the greatest of trials. And so in order for us to understand that, he uses this word various. Did you notice this? He says trials of various kinds. Now, the reason I point that word out is because in the Greek, that particular word is actually used in the Septuagint. That's the, that's the, Old Test- the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And we find it in the story of Joseph. Do you remember the story of Joseph and the coat of many colors, right? And, and, and remember his dad gives him this awesome coat and it's got all these different colors and, 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 and it causes so much turmoil in his life. His brothers want to kill him. And instead they say, hey, let's not kill him. That would be wrong. Let's just sell him into slavery, right? Uh, that's messed up. So anyway, just sell them. Well, the whole word there for the various colors that they use is the same Greek word that he's using here for various trials. And his point is he is casting the broadest, farthest net as he possibly can to encompass every last trial. See, James is a pastor. You need to understand that. And as James, he spent a lot of time counseling with people. And the one thing that he knows more than ever is that every person he talks to about their trials, they think they're the only ones that have a trial like that. They think their trial somehow is harder than everybody else's. It's more difficult than anybody else's. It's more unlivable than anybody else's. And here's what they think. The rules don't apply to them. What the word of God says and the obedience that they're supposed to take in the midst of their particular situation, they say, hey, listen, that's right under normal circumstances. This isn't under normal circumstances. I've got to get out of this and do something else. And so what James does is he doesn't give us that out. 
He's saying not only to them, but he's saying to you, yes, I'm speaking of the trial you yourself are going through now that seem to be above imagination, that seem to be beyond what you're able to be able to handle. He goes, I'm telling you right now, that is the trial that you should be right now rejoicing in and faced with joys. Not joys, sorry, joys. Joy, all right? Joys too, if you're Tom, all right? Now it's important, (laughs) sorry. Sometimes I mess up. I'll keep moving. All right. Now, here's what's important. Not only the type of of suffering and and what's happening to these people, but everything that I just shared with you is coming from my mind. Everything that I'm trying to explain to you up to this point is what I believe the word of God is saying. The clearest is I can possibly teach it. But let me tell you where my heart goes with this. I begin to think of James in not so nice ways. Because what I think is, number one, the dude has lost it. He has a complete disconnect with reality. He is wacko. He is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Somebody stole his marbles. The elevator, you get it, right? Something's not working inside of this guy's mind. This is not what we naturally do. I don't know about you, but I'm allergic to pain and difficulty. Do you you understand that? I do everything I can to remain as far away as pain and difficulty as I possibly can. Do we have anybody else? But what we understand is that at the same time, self-preservation is a natural inclination, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, if you woke up last night, and we've had this happen to people in our church, woke up and your house is ablaze, Is there anything wrong with you sitting there and wanting to flee the flames? No, it's natural. You understand? What's not natural is thinking about s'mores, right? And breaking out some hot dogs and begin, hey, great time to have a barbecue. That's nuts, okay? But it sounds like this is what he's ultimately saying. So the first, my first thought is is that he has a complete break uh, of reality. My second thought is he's an insensitive pastor, He just doesn't get his people, right? Listen, and I know from experience, and I will tell you that some will understand this, some will not. There is no chance that he's saying the things that he is saying is ever going to become the best of the best pastor slash priest of Nassau County given by the news leader. All right? Some of you don't understand that. But I am the award winner twice, two years. The only thing I can't understand is how you win that award because none of you ever voted for me. So really not really quite sure about this. But let me tell you, you talk to your people like this, you ain't winning that award. All right. And so here is James. And and, and, and it would be easy for them to look at James and begin to think this way. You know what? He's a great guy. He knows a lot about the word. He walked with Jesus. He's got a great education. He can really preach. He can do everything else, but he just cannot connect. He's lost complete touch with his congregation and his people. Can I just tell you something for a moment? I do think at a certain way that that probably is possible, but I want to let you know what doesn't allow a pastor to lose touch with his people is the own, his own sin, trials, and difficulties that he faces. He is not exempt from any of the trials and difficulties that you face, he is open to the same exact things. James was open to the same thing. He understood what it meant to suffer. He understood persecution. He would eventually give his very life as a martyr for the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knows exactly what's going on. So when we look at him and we think that he's loony and he's crazy, it makes us understand that, guess what? That he's not the one that's off. We're the one that's off. We don't quite understand what it is that James is saying within this text. So what is he ultimately saying? Well, let me give you a couple ideas of what I know he's not saying. 
Number one, I don't believe that James is commanding us to feel a particular emotion. I don't believe he's sitting there saying, you must work up within yourself joy, an emotion of joy within your heart. All right, he's not expecting that you find out that you have cancer and that moment you're going out and buying party hats and, and, and noisemakers. I don't think that's what he's saying. You know, you need to understand something. I'll say this very quickly. I was talking with Joyce about this the other day, is that you can be obedient and still not feel great about your situation. Do you get that? You could be faithful in the midst of it and still be fearful. What demonstrates your faithfulness is that you're being obedient to God. That demonstrates your faithfulness, not your emotion. Another thing I believe is this, is that he is not even saying that you have to enjoy the trial that you are facing. Well, you know, my wife and I found out the other day that we're losing everything in a lawsuit. And man, we're just loving every minute of it. That's, we just love it. No, I don't think that's what he's saying that you only have to do. Number three, I, I don't think he's this. I, I don't think he's saying that every trial that you face is you have to look and deem as being a good thing. You lose a child, it's never a good thing. Your spouse leaves, it's not a good thing. You find out that you have a terminal disease, it's not a good thing in and of itself. So what is he ultimately saying that? Look, guys, there's people that go around and it's nonsense. They read this passage and they go around and they're like, oh, man, I just found out that I had cancer. I'm doing so good. I've got joy in the name of God. And you're sitting there going, really? What's going on? What is, what is James saying? So I think we have to track through this. I'm going I'm to put this, put this up, if you will. Let me, let me tell you what I think James is commanding us to do here. I'm going to read it to you twice. It says, Make a deliberate and careful decision to experience joy even in the midst of your greatest trials you face because of what you know to be true of all trials in the life of a believer. You read it again. Make a deliberate and careful decision to experience joy even in the midst of your greatest trials for you face because of what you know to be true of all trials in the life of a believer. Let me unpack this. Let me show you how this works. Tragedy happens. You find out that... that you find out that your job is over, your marriage is over, uh, your life is soon to be over. What is it? Normally, it's, it's normal for you to, to feel fear, for you to feel hurt, heartache, sorrow. It's normal. But he says what you do, though, is in the midst of that, you discipline your mind to be able to do what? To keep yourself from spiraling down into the depths of despair and hopelessness by believing in God and believing in his word and what James is teaching us right here. You don't fall into the abyss of hopelessness. What you do is when you understand what James is saying, you remind yourself, you place your faith in the word of God by placing your faith in him. And what do we ultimately do? Instead of going into the ashes, we rise above them in faith. So how does that work? What is it that they know? See, all this is based on something you know, he says. He says, and what is it that they know? Notice, if you will, James writes in verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Okay, let's, let's break this down just a little bit. There's a lot in there. Let's look at the word know. The Greek word there is gnosko, and it's significant because um, it's not the kind of know like a cognitive understanding of something. In other words, you know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. You know that the Gators are the greatest sports team in the history of the world. It's just stuff cognitively you know. Um, but, uh, all right, just want to make sure you're awake. All right. Uh, but on the other side, uh, he's not talking about just something that you know intellectually. He says it's something that you know experientially. It's something that you guys have experienced before. He's saying to his original, uh, uh, his original audience. And what is it that they had experienced before? 
What was it that they knew through experience? What they knew is this, that when you find yourself in troubles and tribulations and hardships and your life seems to be falling apart, in the very midst of that, you oftentimes feel that there is no help for you. You're wondering where God is. You don't know how to get out of the situation that you're in. You think that this could be the very end. You don't think that there's ever going to be another day of joy. Does anybody relate to this at all? You don't think that there's any hope in that moment. But the time that you begin to come out of that, and after time has passed, you begin to look back, and you begin to see the hand of God all over you and all over that situation. And he begins to teach something in you you never thought was possible. There were people you... You folks can identify with this. I guarantee if we just stopped the service and said, hey, give me a time in your life when you saw no way out and you felt like you were in the pit, but God was good in the midst of that. Not your situation, but God was good. And he began to change you through the process. I guarantee that we would have believer after believer after believer would sit there and say, I didn't believe it was possible, but it was. And some would even give this testimony. As bad and as horrible as that as it was, and how I would never wish this upon my worst enemy, I thank God I went through it because of what he did and me. And I wouldn't give it up for the world. I'd give up my sin, but not what God did inside my life. Do you hear that? And he says, listen, you know because you've experienced this. Here's our problem. Our problem is even though many of us have experienced it, we suffer from what's called short-term memory loss. You got that, right? We can, I mean, I may be the only one in here that can praise God for his goodness and his faith. Something immediately happened and me forget about his goodness and his faith. You, you, You with me? I mean, instantaneously. I could sit there, oh, brother, God is so good. What happened, honey? Hey, we we just went bankrupt. (laughs) Hold on one second. (laughs) God was good then. I don't know if he could be good again. I'll tell you later. Right? But have you ever sensed that? It's short-term memory loss. And what he's sitting there is he's saying, listen, just as I've been faithful time and time and time again, I'll be faithful again. I'm using these in you to change you. What is it specifically that you're trying to bring about Let's take a closer look at the process that James describes here. James says that the believers, that when we face trials of our faith, is tested. It produces steadfastness. Now, what does steadfastness mean? That's not really a common word, is it? Hey, children, listen, we need to be steadfast today in what we're doing. What? Steadfast. Let me tell you what the, the word literally means. It speaks and it describes a person carrying a heavy load for a long time without buckling or failing underneath the weight. That's what it means to be steadfast. It means to have all the weight of the world on your shoulders. And you don't buckle one time. Not for a minute. Not for a day. Not for a week. Not for an hour. Now, it didn't say that inside you might be wrecked. But it's saying outside you don't buckle one iota. Other words for it would be endurance and toughness. God doesn't want wimpy Christians. He wants tough Christians. He doesn't want... Christians, that every time something happens with the stock market or gas prices or the election, that you're running around like Chicken Little and the the sky is falling. He wants Christians that even the most devastating thing, as far as the word would ultimately call it, happens. And that person will sit there and say, but I'm still firm in God. I'm still standing firm in God. Are you hurt? Absolutely, I'm hurt. Are you struggling? Absolutely, I'm struggling. But why do you keep going? Why can you be so firm? Because I know that God is good. I learned it before. I'll learn it again in a way and a depth that I've never known it before. 
And so what he says is, you know, there's only one way to really grow in your faith in Christ. I want you to grasp this. There's only one way to grow in your faith in Christ, and it's under pressure. It's under difficulty. It's under trial. So God, in his love, allows you and I, from early life to, 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 to the day we're put in the coffin, to go through trial after trial after trial after trial after trial again. It will never cease stopping trials. Why? Because it helps us in our faith to be stronger. But understand something. Look at the progression. It's not just steadfastness that he's looking for. It's not just something that he, he wants to do in us. He wants to do so much more. The ultimate goal is not for us to be tough Christians. The ultimate goal is for us to be mature Christians. Notice, if you will, in the word of God, this last sentence, he says that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Let's just very quickly break those three words apart. The first one here is he says he wants you to be perfect. Now, what is he saying? Is he saying that the difficulty you're going through right now, that literally when you get done with it, you will be perfect and you will be sinless? No. In fact, James is going to say later in the book, in chapter 3 and verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. Amen? So he's not talking about perfection, but what he's talking about is completeness, wholeness, being well-rounded. When he talks here about the word complete, he says, he says it, has the, it has the same meaning as complete. The, the Greek word complete here is used in Acts chapter 3 and verse 16 to describe the healing of a lame man, a lame beggar, and, and it uses it to speak of the man's feet and ankles becoming strong so that, he can be, so that he can function as a complete human being without handicap. Do you know what your handicap is? Sin. And a lack of faith. He works in us through the trial so that we're no longer handicapped. So that we are and we can stand up fully like a full person that Jesus would want us to be. So he says perfect, he says complete, and then he follows it up with the same thing, lacking nothing. All synonyms, all saying the same thing. Let me break it down for you. The Christian, with, the Christian can with confidence, you as a believer in Jesus Christ can with confidence, in the face of the most difficult trials, you can, you can face them with joy. Why? Because you face them, you endure them, you remain faithful through them, that the end result will be that he will make you mature, complete, and lacking nothing that's the goal it's the desire now let me let me break this apart for you You say where's the gospel in all this i'm so glad that you asked even though some of you may not have who do you know who do you know that is perfect complete lacking in nothing jesus so we understand what god's doing don't we He says, here's the deal. The reason I'm allowing you to be under pressure of the trials and the difficulties is because my desire for you is to look just like my son, who is the exact image and likeness of the father. He, above all else, demonstrates how glorious I am. I want you to be able to do the same. So I'm going to use these to change you into the likeness of my son, Jesus Christ. And let me say a couple things. Here's some application. Number one, there are some of you, you need to understand, you're apart from Jesus Christ. You've never been born again. You've never repented of your sins. Here's your, your situation. You are not perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. You, like the rest of us, are sinners. You have willfully done what is wrong in sight of God, and because because of that, one day you will stand before God in judgment where the righteous wrath of God will pour out on you. That's bad news. Good news. You may not be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing, but there is one who is. And God in his love sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place 
to pay for your sin debt, to allow your sin to fall on him, to allow the wrath of God that was meant for you to pour on him as a substitute so that you could escape it. And the Bible says, if you repent, that means if you turn and say, listen, what am I doing? I'm living for self. I'm not living for my creator. I'm doing everything my way. What am I doing? And you repent and you turn from that and you say, God, I know that you died for me. I know that you rose again, demonstrating that that your sacrifice actually made a difference. And now I can become alive in you. Jesus, forgive me. Make me alive. Make me your child. But you know what? what is, that's, so part of this application is driving some of you to the cross, to the gospel. The rest, the application, is taking the rest of you to act from the gospel. Those of you who have been saved, here's a, great, here's a great motivation for you. Not to beat you on the head with do better preaching. You need to do better, do better. No, that's legalism. But for you to live out this life in faith. And what is the faith? I know that if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, and if you're not a believer, you don't get this, but you can get this, that within your heart of heart, there's nothing more than you want to do than to be like Jesus. And it's not because you're better than anybody else. It's because the grace of God saved you. He got in you. He changed you. He gave you, as Ezekiel chapter 36 says, he gave you a new heart, a new wanter, and he gave you a new spirit. And he makes us to walk according to his statutes. And the reason that he does that is because he wants us, once again, to be like his son, Jesus. And every true believer, you feel it in your heart? I want to be like Jesus. That's who I want to be like. So there's two misunderstandings. I'm going to finish with this. Two misunderstandings. Number one, there is a life out there without trials. There's a life out there without trials. I think people won't admit that, but I think this is what they mean. They think that if they can just get out of whatever it is that they are in somewhere else, life will be easier. Isn't that how we think? If we just get through this one, if we get just through this trial, then everything else is going to be smooth sailing. We won't have any problems anymore. But did you know something? This is what James says. In the Greek tense, it makes much more sense. In verse 2, he says, did, did you know that he uses the word when you meet trials? Did you notice he didn't say if you meet trials? When? I'll go back to where we began. You cannot escape trials in this life. You cannot escape, escape troubles in this life. Now, there are certain things that you may be able to be exempted from because you're not living in a life of sin and you're living a life submitted to God. So you're not having to deal with so much of that sin consequence. But guess what? You can live almost a perfect life, which is impossible. But if you could, you'd still have troubles and tribulations. You can't get out of it. So here's the question. I want you to understand that. I, I want you to, to understand that it's natural for us. And listen, I'm a young man. I'm a young man compared to some of you. You're right. You're 60 years old. I'm just cutting my teeth. If you're 20, as Ashley tells me, I'm an old man. All right. Thank you, Ashley. Right. She's like, I didn't say that. No, but Sam did. Where's Sam at? All right. So, but then you begin to think and you're like, well, if she's 20 something, then I really am an old man compared to them. Right. And so what do you do with this? Well, here's how this whole life thing works. You keep thinking that when you're in the next stage of life, there's not going to be any more trials. Anybody there with me? I mean, you know, you were in preschool, and man, you thought you had it tough. You remember that? Man, if I'd just not be made to lay down for naps, my life would be so much easier. But at the time, it was a deal, right? I mean, it was an ordeal. Oh, I got to take a nap all the time. 
right? And you just keep progressing through life, and then you sit there and go, man, when we get to the next stage, with the next stage, what was waiting there when you turned that next age? Another trial, and another trial, and another trial. So you have your choice. Your choice is you either shrink up or you stand up. You either continue to bellyache and to be able to fall back in your faith, or you move forward and say, I've seen this before. I've been here before. And by faith, I know the word of God. I, know one, I don't know how this is going to end, but I know one thing that's going to happen. I'm going to be more like Jesus. Second thing, misunderstanding. Trials produce maturity. I know that might be what it just sounded like I said, but, but, but trials do not produce maturity. I know a lot of professing believers who are going through a lot, a lot, a lot. Ever since I've known them, they've been going through a great deal of problems and difficulties in their life, I'm not seeing any more maturity. You know why? Because it's not the difficulties that produce maturity. It's the steadfastness and the endurance and the standing up and the remaining faithful to a holy God in the midst of that, no matter what. In every single difficulty that you come to, there will often be an easier way out But I'm telling you right now, on the authority of the word of God, the easier way out is 99.9% of the time, the sinful way out, the disobedient way out, the unfaithful way out. Did you notice something in the text, and he ended up saying this, is the idea is, is when he says that you're, you have to endure, it actually, it, it just tells one truth. It lets us know that you going through your difficulty is not going to go quickly. Did, did, did you ever realize that with, with, with difficulties? They come when they're unexpectedly, they come out of the blue. Would you guys re, uh, agree with that? And what happens? They stay longer than what you want. They come without any warning, and they stay longer than you want. They're kind of like extended family, right? Okay, a whole other sermon. We'll get somewhere else for that later. But that's how they are. And so what do, we, what do we understand? We understand that, listen, if I'm going to be like Christ, I have to remain faithful. Some of you within it, you're being tempted to take the easy road to be able to get out. I'm telling you right now, get underneath the pressure. Allow the pressure to take its course in you. Allow it even to drive you to the cross or live from the cross and the truth that you want to be like Jesus Christ. Okay? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you.